Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, tonight we're going to pick up in 2 Kings chapter 22, and we'll go all the way through the end, which will take us to chapter 25. The big picture tonight, Judah sees hope for reform and revival, but it will not last. Judah sees hope for reform and revival, but it won't last. We see great reforms take place under a king named Josiah who comes to the throne at only eight years old. This is followed by yet more wickedness in the kingdom of Judah. As we see Babylon come in to destroy Judah, namely the city of Jerusalem, and exiles all remaining survivors. So just to quote the big picture from your study guide, if you're using that, God brings judgment to his people for their sin and idolatry while sustaining hope for their future through the survival of the Davidic line. That's a lot of words, I know. He brings judgment for his people, but he also preserves the Davidic line. And by it's just a big fancy word for saying David's heritage, David's line. So back in 2 Samuel 7, remember we rooted all of it in there, and that promise to David, your son, one of your sons will sit on your throne as king forever, justice and righteousness and all that good stuff. That's the promise that drives all the way through the king's And it's the promise at the end that we see preserved, even though Israel is destroyed and Judah is now taken captive to Babylon. So let's talk about the reforms that we see under King Josiah. Look beginning in chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah and Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So up front we have a good report card for Josiah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David. That's a good thing. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying... Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen uh, who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. Okay, so... What we're going to see here is that Josiah comes to the throne. He immediately starts reforms. What's going to happen, though, here in verse 8 will change the entire course of the narrative, at least until the next king. Look what happens in verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law 
in the house of the Lord. And so what begins to happen under Josiah's reign in that, in that the book of the law is found, the book of the law is recovered, and it brings reform. Now, we read that and we think, what, what does that mean that they recovered the book of the law? Well, whatever it means, it seems like the Torah, at least, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament that kind of lay the groundwork for who Israel is and what their nation is supposed to be and what they're supposed to do and all the laws about worship and the temple and all that seems to have been, at best, neglected. At worst, they seem to have been completely lost amid all the idolatry and all the nations that have been in and out of the temple plundering and taking what they wanted and the kings that even brought them in and let them take what they wanted. Somewhere in the mix, the book of the law, the actual Torah, had been neglected, forgotten, and maybe even lost. But now as Josiah begins his reforms, starting with his faithfulness to repair and rebuild the temple, what we see is that the book of the law itself is recovered as the temple is repaired. So we see his faithfulness from the beginning in that he begins to turn his attention to these things that have been neglected. Why does the temple need repair again? Because remember, it happened earlier. Why does the temple need repair yet again? Well, because it's been neglected for generations. It's been set aside. It's been filled with other altars and other worship uh, items from other gods and other pagan kingdoms. And so it's neglected, it needs repair, and one of the first signs of Josiah's faithfulness is that he begins to repair the temple. And while repairing the temple, we see the book of the law, the word of God, recovered And as the temple is repaired. This initiates a period of reform in Judah. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 22, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achabor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and and, uh, Asaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now, the uh, reforms continue through the rest of the chapter, but it's interesting to note here at the beginning that the first thing that happens when Josiah hears the words of the book in verse 11 is that he tears his clothes, which is a sign of repentance and brokenness before the Lord. Then look later in chapter 22... Starting in verse 18, to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, uh, the the priest says, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse, you have torn your clothes and wept wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Then in chapter 23, we begin to see the actual reforms that Josiah enacts. Um, In verses 1 through 3, Josiah really kind of reestablishes the covenant with God. 
And we see this every time Israel goes through a period of repentance and, and conviction for sin and they turn away from idols. There's always this sort of covenant renewal ceremony. It happens throughout the book of, book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. It happens throughout the book of Judges and Joshua. And now it's happening here yet again. As they read the law, they're convicted of their sin, and there's a covenant renewal with God. In verses 4 through, uh, four, four through 5-ish, the vessels of the false gods are destroyed. It says in verse 4, the middle part, uh, The vessels of the temple of the Lord, all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah and for all the host of heaven, he burned them outside Jerusalem. In verse 5, it says, He deposed the priests. That means he fired all the false priests that were serving in the temple. Uh, they were ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Jerusalem, uh, Judah and around Jerusalem. So he's got rid of all the vessels that belong to these foreign gods. He's firing all the priests who had sacrificed to these foreign gods. Verse 6, and he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. Now the Asherah just refers to a female goddess that took many different forms in the ancient Near East. On your handout there, you see two sort of tall, slender figures. These are representations of Asherah. And what they would often do is erect these poles or big logs and then carve those images into the logs so that you might go into a field on top of a hill, a high place, and you would see what would look like a tree, but the closer you got, it would be an actual idol that was carved into a tree to represent this female goddess. We see that some of those poles were actually brought into the temple, into the house of God, but now Josiah removes them, verse 6, tears them down and burns them. In verse 7, he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes that were in the house of the Lord. Uh, in verse 8, he brought out all the priests out of the cities of Judah that defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high places of the gates that were in the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left uh, at the gate of the city. Then in verse 10, he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. So when it says that Josiah defiled this place of worship, it's a good thing. This was a sacred place for these pagan worshipers who came there to worship the false god in Molech. Remember this? With the abominable practice of child sacrifice. A practice, unfortunately, that some of the kings of Israel and even Judah had ventured into against the direct command and prohibition of the Lord. So we kind of we see this building escalation of the things that Josiah did. I mean, he's reading this book presumably for the first time, and he doesn't wait. He doesn't stall. He doesn't give it time. He immediately starts taking out the vessels, taking out the idols, breaking down the altars, breaking down the false places of worship. And now he comes to that penultimate, that abominable sacrifice of children, and he tears down those altars too. Uh, he continues this all the way through... Uh, chapter or verse 12 and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz remember him which the kings of Judah had made and the altars that Manasseh had made king just before him a couple before him he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust off of them into the brook Kidron 
And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians. So we begin to see these names recalled, too. And we're kind of working backwards to Manasseh, who was listed, remember, as the worst king. But we also go all the way back to Solomon. And we're reminded here at the end of this book how this all began with Solomon as he turned his heart away from the Lord, turned his attention to his foreign wives who brought in their foreign worship, even making Solomon build these false high places and these false altars for their false gods. We're reminded of that all here at the end as Josiah systematically goes through and reforms the nation, removing all these forms of idolatry. Yet despite these reforms, because we would think, man, this is it. This is going to reverse the whole thing. But what did God already say at the end of chapter 22? He said, Josiah, I'm going to spare you from seeing the desolation. But at the end of chapter 23, verses 23, or 26 through 27, it says, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off the city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Despite the reforms, although Josiah is spared from seeing this destruction, the Lord said that, this destruction will nevertheless come. He said, Josiah, because you have wept and torn your clothes, and then Josiah goes on to make all of these reforms in the country and to remove all these forms of idolatry, even though God's judgment is still coming, he will spare Josiah from seeing it. But at this point, he will not let up on the judgment he has promised, namely that Judah will be destroyed and carried off in the same way that Israel was. There's also an interesting note in verse 16 of chapter 23, if you just want to put a little reference for later. In verse 16, it says, And Josiah turned, he saw the tombs on the mount, and he sent and took bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God had proclaimed, who had predicted these things. If you just want to write beside that, and it might be a footnote in your Bible anyway, if you want to write beside that 1 Kings chapter 13, all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 13, I don't know if you remember this or not, but the very first wicked king of Israel, Jeroboam, remember him, the first king after the division of the kingdoms, uh, when he had constructed these false altars to these pagan gods, in 1 Kings 13, God sends an unnamed prophet. Remember in verses 2 through 3 of 1 Kings 13, that prophet comes and prophesies that these false altars will be defiled and they will be filled with human bones and turned into dust. And here at the very end of the story, as we, we begin to see God enact his judgment on his people for the last time in the story, we're taken again back to the beginning of the story when that prophet said, this is exactly what will be happening to your false altars. They will be defiled, filled with human bones, and reduced to nothing but dust because that's really all they're good for anyway. Just a, a 
interesting side note there at the end, how God brings all these stories from the beginning of the, the book uh, back to mind at the end of the book. So with uh, Judah's fate sealed, the judgment that God said that is coming is going to indeed come, although Josiah will be spared. Um, we begin to see the last kings that will reign in Judah before God's judgment comes. At the end of chapter 23, we have um, Josiah killed by Necho, or Necho, king of Egypt. So again, we, we see a good king, had a good report card, enacted lots of reforms, and you know, as you're reading through the narrative, we already heard from the Lord that he was going to die. Right, I'm going to spare you before the destruction comes. Even then, we might hold out hope to think this is the king that we're waiting on. This is the one that's going to bring revival and restoration and salvation to the people. We're going to reign forever in justice and righteousness. This is the one we've been waiting on. But nevertheless, he's captured by King Necho of Egypt, and he is killed. And his son, Jehoahaz, reigns in his place in the throne of Judah. Jehoahaz. Now, remember, as I said, the circling of the drain and how it seems to go faster here at the end. It's going to go really fast now because Jehoahaz only reigns three months before he is captured by Necho, that very same Pharaoh that killed his father Josiah, now kills him. And Jehoiakim, and this is interesting, Jehoiakim, and then there's Jehoiakim. So there's two different kings with similar names as we've seen throughout this book. Jehoiakim begins to reign, or beings, begins to reign, I should say, as Babylon comes back into the picture. Look at the end of chapter 23, verse 34. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah king, to reign in the place of Josiah his father and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away. He came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold of the people of the land from everyone according to the assessment to give uh, it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Zebida, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now in chapter 24, immediately though, we've been seeing Egypt, 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 but immediately in chapter 24, we're reintroduced to Babylon. And a familiar name for those of us who know our Bibles and Daniel and the Babylonian exile, these are the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of of Babylon. Now remember, there's been this power struggle between Egypt and Babylon that's ongoing. That's part of what all this is. That's part of what really caused the, the Assyrians to come in and take Israel. Remember, because Israel was paying tribute to Egypt, suddenly they stopped and they started paying tribute to, or they're paying tribute to Assyria. Then they started paying tribute to Egypt, made Assyria mad, and it's really where all of the conquest came in the north. Similar thing is happening here in the south as they're having to decide whether we give our allegiance to Egypt to protect us or do we give our allegiance to Babylon, who's now in the picture. Um, and Babylon comes back there into the picture in chapter 24. Jehoiakim wastes no time selling Judah to Babylon. 
It says there in verse 1 after where we introduced to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon that Jehoiakim became his servant. Meaning that Jehoiakim contacted Nebuchadnezzar some way, probably wrote to him or sent a messenger, basically saying, we're assuming, if you'll protect us and you won't come in and take us, we'll be your servants, basically a vassal, this sort of a puppet king. We'll do what you want and we'll help you in your military conquest if you leave us alone and you protect us. And so he sells the soul, we've seen this before, haven't we? He sells the soul of Judah to Babylon for their protection and to leave them alone. Only in the same verse to turn around and rebel. And we begin to see the desperation of Judah, don't we? Because they were paying Egypt all this tribute. But in order to pay Egypt the tribute, they were having to raise taxes on the poor in their own country. And now that they're facing Babylon, presumably they're having the same problem. We've got to pay all this money to Babylon, but we have to keep raising taxes on the people to do it. And the country is getting poorer and poorer and poorer as they're shoveling out all this money for this so-called protection. And so it brings this rebellion. But this rebellion is crushed as the judgment of Judah begins. Remember that as we're reading this, we're seeing politics played out. Worldly kingdoms rising and falling. Earthly kings rising and falling. And we'd be tempted to just sort of fall into that as the storyline. That that's really all that's going on here. Because in verse 2 through 7, what we see from a human perspective is just the kingdom of Babylon squashing this rebellion. Right? They owed them money. They seem to not be paying anymore. They're rebelling. And so the empire of Babylon is coming in and just squashing this rebellion. But look at verse 2. Who was behind it all from the very beginning? The Lord sent against him, that is against Judah, bands of the Chaldeans, bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. So even as Judah rebels against this wicked kingdom, Babylon, The Lord allows Babylon to use these other pagan kingdoms to begin his onslaught of judgment on his own people. Now, in the rest of chapter 24, we only begin to see more and more decline. There in verses 6 through 7, Jehoiakim dies, and Jehoiakim, C-H-I-N, reigns in his place. Now, verse 7, we see some relief, at least on one front. The king of Egypt doesn't bother them anymore because now the king of Babylon is on the move. We have a no good report card for this new king either. In case we were holding out hope that we might be getting somewhere, even as God's judgment begins, is there any more hope? Is there a glimmer of hope left? Verses 8 and 9, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And so what begins to happen in verses 10 through 20 is that the siege of Judah and Jerusalem that began back under Jehoiakim for his rebellion now comes full circle. In verses 12 through 13, it says, And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. 
And the king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord was had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except for the poorest people of the land. So what does the king do? He comes in, he takes the king, he takes his family, he takes his officials, he takes all the mighty men, all the rich, all the wealthy, all the wise men. The only people he's leaving there are the poorest of the poor. And really, and this is terrible, but this is what the king thinks, like who cares about them anyway? Let them sit here and starve. They're of no use to me. I'll take the rich, I'll take the powerful, I'll take the wise, I'll take the artists, artist, craftsmen, mighty men, I'll take all them. We'll leave the obsolete people to die here. I'll take the rest with me. Verse 16, the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and metal workers, 1,000, and all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Madaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, puppet king, and changed his name to last king, we're going to see king, or last king until the exile, king Zedekiah. Verse 19, Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. I mean, think of what's left with his kingdom. All the armies, all the mighty men, all the craftsmen, they're all gone to Babylon now. He's left to sort of just hold the place of the king here in Judah. And all that's left in Judah and Jerusalem are the poorest of the poor. Even then, verse 20, Zedekiah rebels against the king of Babylon. And we're going to see how that final rebellion is squashed by Babylon as that exile is completed. We kind of come here to this halfway point, and we're about to see the final exile and conquest of Jerusalem and Judah. We see the curse of gener a generational apostasy that can occur when God and his word are abandoned and forgotten. The sin and wickedness that takes hold is deadly. I saw something, I think it was a meme on Facebook, not a meme, like an actual post that, that someone had, memes are generally funny, this was serious, and the post was something like, um, uh, when church becomes optional to the parents, it will become obsolete to the children, something like that. And, and the point of the post was this, as, as we become lax in our faithfulness to the things of God, not the least of which is church attendance. But our, our Bibles, our prayer time, talking about the Lord, talking about the things of God with your children, with your family, making sure they understand doctrine and the gospel and who Jesus is. As we, you know, even singing songs to your kids and to your grandkids, teaching them hymns that have truth and substance. As we forget to do those things, you know, we might begin to think that missing church here and there is no big deal. Missing church then maybe for a month or so is no big deal. Missing church for seasons becomes no big deal. All the while we're teaching our children and our grandchildren, what? That church isn't all that important. And so what becomes just a casual thing for us will become a thing that's absent altogether for our children. And we see that happen here even in the Old Testament, even in this seemingly foreign setting, something very similar. That as God's word has been forgotten, 
And as God is abandoned and God is removed from their society and their families and even their worship, and as they bring everything, everything else into their worship except God and his word, God is forgotten. And one generation after the other will suffer the curse of apostasy and sin and wickedness, and it only grows and grows and grows until it's absolutely deadly, as we see here in this final chapter of the book, and this final chapter, at least for this period of Judah's history. In chapter 25, we reach the end of Judah's downward spiral. Zedekiah, at the end of chapter 24, had raised a rebellion against Babylon. And in this final move against Judah and Jerusalem, Babylon retaliates to Zedekiah's rebellion. Beginning in chapter 25, In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works around it so that the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And look at verses 6 and 7. Then they captured the king, Zedekiah, and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. What is so significant about the, excuse the zero, should be a in parentheses in verses six through seven. <laughs> There's no seventy verses. Uh, verses six through seven. What is so significant about the fate of Zedekiah? I mean, can you think of a more appropriate, poetic end, as awful as it is, to his reign, and really the end of Judah as we know it, than for the king to be captured and blinded? These wicked kings who had as the blind leading the blind, continually led the people astray, continually led the people into spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness, he is now made physically blind. Not only that, but before he's blinded, the king makes him watch the slaughter of his own sons. Now, as emotionally moving as that is and would have been, think about the political ramifications. There goes your line. There goes the rest of the kings from you. There's no hope for the rest of your heritage in your line. Not just to mention there your sons being killed. And there's this sort of poetic echo of all the times that Judah and Israel had turned to child sacrifice. God says, you want to burn your sons to false gods? Fine, I'll take your sons from you myself. I'll take them. And I'll take your sight. You want to walk in spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness? I'll take your physical sight and your sons from you. And so there's this sort of poetic end to the reign of Zedekiah and really the reign and the rule of all Judah. In verse 9, the temple is burned, torn down, destroyed. In verse 10, the walls of the city are destroyed. 
And then in verses 13 through 17, the temple that it now lies in ashes and ruins is plundered. So all the precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, the pillars, they're all taken away to Babylon. Lastly, in verse 21, Judah is exiled. The king of Babylon struck them down, put them to death, that is all the priests. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So this is sort of the end of the story for Israel and Judah. We we saw uh, Israel two weeks ago as they were conquered by Assyria and taken off. And not only were they taken off, but they were scattered, remember? And then the king of Assyria put back in all these foreign pagan people back into the land of Israel to repopulate it, to mix it up forever. And now Judah is taken captive into Babylon at the end of their story. So we come all the way from chapter 1, when David was reigning, glory, majesty, power in Israel, a united kingdom. We saw Solomon's reign continue. We began to see those cracks with Solomon, didn't we, as he chased after his foreign wives and their foreign gods. And God said, after you, I will divide the kingdom, and he does. And from then, we've just been kind of going down this downward spiral, going down the drain since then until this point. Israel has been destroyed, and now Jerusalem itself, the temple itself, is destroyed. And all of Judah is exiled. You think about these judgments in light of the people of Jerusalem. Of Israel and Judah and God says you're my people I'm your God I will live with you you'll live with me I will be there in your midst my presence will be there in your midst through the tabernacle and now through the temple that we saw built and constructed my presence my glory my name my power is with you and now one by one we begin to see all those things slip away as the people turn their back on God they're no longer his people he's no longer their God they're sent out of their promised land back to Babylon And now the temple itself, where God says, my name and my glory, my presence will dwell, the temple is destroyed. Now, we think that would be the end of the book. The destruction of Judah, you need to learn your lesson, you should repent, you should turn back to God. That should be the moral of the book now, right? We say, this is what this has all been about. But we end with a different episode, verse 27 through 30. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, Evil Mordach, and that doesn't mean he was evil, though he was, that's his name, <laughs> Evil Mordach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. Why do you think at the end of the book we conclude with this, not really an eventful story, but an interesting story of the release of Jehoiakim from prison, And that he somehow found favor in the eyes of the king of Babylon. Was raised and exalted to this level of rulership in Babylon. He was given an allowance and the king spoke kindly to him. And that's how the book ends. God intends here at the end of the book by the author to give us a glimmer of hope. 
because Jehoiakim, as wicked and evil as he was, and as much as he almost brought down single-handedly the nation of Judah and gave it to Babylon, God nevertheless shows his mercy and his grace to the least deserving so as to preserve this remnant of the Davidic line. As if to say, you might not be king right now in Judah, and you might not be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, but I am protecting my promise. And he's showing us as we come to the end of this book that although all seems lost and all seems destroyed and the walls are torn down and the temple is destroyed and here are the whole people of God in a foreign land that's not their home, that God is nevertheless preserving his people and preserving this line that he promised would reign forever. Very interesting thing if you have maps in your Bible or you can go look at a map later. Very interesting thing about the capture of Judah and the exile of the people of Judah. When Assyria came in and took Israel, the king intentionally scattered them, put different portions of the Israelites into different kingdoms, and then intentionally took several different pagan nations and moved them into Israel so as to repopulate it, remix it up. These ethnic Jewish people would never live solely in Israel again. Judah was different. Judah is taken, and they're not scattered amongst all the kingdoms. And Babylon does not repopulate Judah with lots of other pagan kingdoms and nations. There remains some semblance of Jerusalem there. The walls are torn down, the city is destroyed, all that's left are the poor, and there's puppet kings there, but there's still a kingdom, there's still a place. But all the people as one whole people are taken from Judah to Babylon. Not scattered, not dispersed, not mixed up with other nationalities, but they're taken as a people to a different kingdom. Now you know the story. Seventy so years later, under uh, various kings, Darius and Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus, remember Nehemiah and Ezra will lead the people back to rebuild the wall. And slowly God will repopulate Jerusalem with his people, a people that he kept intact when they were exiled. Israel was scattered and destroyed and mixed up. Judah is preserved. And here at the end of the book, we see that glimmer of hope with Jehoiakim as his life is preserved. The line is preserved. And we see God's grace and mercy and power to keep his promises, not for their sakes, but for his own sake and his own glory. So at the end of tonight's stories and at the end of these books in general, what's the big picture? What's it all about? Well, tonight I think one of the more interesting points that we see is that the law brought the knowledge of sin. When the law was recovered and the law was read, the people realized their sin. Only when that happened did repentance or can repentance come. And that repentance brings a restoration of true worship. We begin to see that as the law is read and they understand where they've sinned against God, they don't just repent, 
but they begin to reform things and do things according to what God had said. They celebrate the Passover for the first time in generations because this is the first time many of them have even heard of that. Can you imagine? They celebrate the feast and the Sabbaths. The priesthood is reinstated and they're beginning to sacrifice according to the law for the first time in probably generations, all because God's word was recovered and God's word was reinstated. Repentance came, restoration came. This Sunday is Reformation Sunday and we're going to, as a church, remember what God did at the time of the Reformation through Luther and others. But what was the cause of the Reformation? What did the Reformers say was the cause of the Reformation? Luther said, I did nothing, but the Word did everything. The Reformation didn't happen because of Martin Luther or John Calvin or Ulrich Zwingli or anyone else. The Reformation happened because there was a recovery of the Word of God. And for the first time, men like Luther and the average person in Germany and Switzerland and England and France and Spain, for the first time, they were hearing the Bible in their own language. Can you imagine? They were reading the Bible in their own languages. And so God, through a new knowledge of the Word, a recovery of the Word and His true gospel, from all the stuff that Catholicism had piled on top of it, in this recovery, this reformation, it was brought about by the word of God. Just like this reformation in ancient Judah. Repentance came and true worship was restored. As a nation, though, Judah failed God and faced judgment. But a remnant was preserved through it all. There are still those faithful, pardon my typos tonight, I might have been in a hurry. There are those still faithful to Yahweh. I think about how often Elijah, you know, he told the Lord, I, I only I am left among all the prophets, they've torn up uh, your prophets, they've torn up your temple, and I, even I only am left among all the prophets of Judas, just me, I'm all alone, and God reminded him, no, you're not alone, <laughs> there is a remnant that I've preserved for my name who have not bowed down to Baal. Here at the end, I think it's worth remembering that there were still those in Judah faithful to God. You think about who was prophesying at this time. Jeremiah was a prophet at this time. He was a contemporary of all these things happening. He was faithful to the Lord. He wrote the entire book of Lamentations, lamenting over the fall of Jerusalem and Judah. Think about Daniel. He's taken away captive during this time. He serves under Nebuchadnezzar, as do Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. We just uh, finished that book with our, our men's study on Thursday mornings about Daniel and those Hebrew boys there at the beginning of Daniel in captivity in Babylon, faithful to Yahweh, even while they were exiled in a foreign land. So this was not the end of Judah's story. This was not the end of the story of the people of God. It certainly wasn't the end of God's promises. God was preserving a remnant for his name through it all. There is always hope for restoration. And the book ends with just that glimmer of hope in the king's kindness to Jehoiakim.
When we come to the New Testament, I think sometimes we're tempted to think that all that stuff's done with and now we're in this whole new thing. That, that God was really angry and perturbed all the time back then, but now he's generally nicer and loving and we have Jesus and that makes everything okay. And it's like a completely different story on this side of the New Testament. But it's not a new story. It's the same story. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, that God is still just and God will still judge each man, Romans 2, 6, according to what he has done. Every single human being will give an account to God for their works. And the basis of that judgment will be God's holy, pure law. Each person, Hebrews 9.27 tells us, will face God in judgment. It is appointed to a man once to die, and after this, judgment. God still works through the law to bring conviction. Paul says in Romans 3.20, the law can't justify you, but it does bring the knowledge of sin. Paul says, without the law, I wouldn't have known sin. Isn't that what happened here in ancient Judah? They recovered the law. I mean, I'm sure many of them knew they were far from God, but not until that book was recovered and read did they realize how far they were from God. Such is the case with the preaching of the Word of God. So many churches have shied away from the preaching of the law, the preaching of judgment, the preaching of hell, the preaching of condemnation, that God is just, and he is a judge, and he has wrath and anger. There's so many Christians who are offended by that kind of talk today. Now listen, unless we understand God and his wrath and his holiness and his purity and his judgment, until we understand that, we don't really have any good news, do we? Unless we understand the bad news, there's no such thing as the good news. Yes, God has shown his grace and kindness and mercy in Christ to forgive us and to free us from the condemnation of the law. But unless we start with the condemnation of the law, we don't have any good news to present. I think it was Spurgeon or one of the preachers I like to listen to that said that the law and the preaching of sin and judgment and hell, that is the black velvet on which the diamond of God's grace shines. And the picture was, you know, as you go into a jewelry store or, or they give you that little box with the ring or the earrings or whatever shiny thing is in there, they, put it, they don't put it in a bright, shiny box, do they? Dull, matte, black, velvet. So when it's opened and a light hits that diamond or the jewel, it sparkles all the more. That black velvet is the preaching of God's law that brings conviction of sin, that brings a knowledge of sin, so that when the gospel of grace is then preached, it shines all the more gloriously. This conviction is not meant to leave us in our despair, but through the preaching of the gospel, this conviction is meant to point us to Christ. I'll read briefly from Romans chapter 3, where I just quoted from, Paul says in Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. And we need that. Verse 21, Because the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we were to stop there and God judges each one according to his works and all men are sinful and fall short of his glory, guess what should be the sentence for each one of us? Guilty as charged under the law. Verse 24, but we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a substitutionary sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Only those who come to Christ in repentance, having heard the condemnation of the law, but then the good news of the gospel, who come to Christ in faith, only they can offer him true worship. That's why Paul can say in Romans 12, 1 through 2, offer your bodies then as a living sacrifice. Why? Because of the mercies of God that he's shown you in Christ. This whole thing we're talking about here, the whole thing we'll talk about Sunday with the Reformation was about this word, what it means to be justified. Those who place their faith in Christ are justified. Condemned under the law? Yes. Guilty as charged? Yes. Deserving of hell and God's eternal condemnation? Yes. But we can be justified or made right through Christ. Why? How can we be saved? Because we are saved from his judgment because Jesus took that judgment on himself. That's what propitiation means. A substitutionary penal, that means he took the penalty for those for whom he died. And so Paul says God remains both just and the justifier. And that's the good news of the gospel. And you don't have one without the other. I think so often we, we, we kind of unintentionally water the gospel down to God just being the justifier. And we view salvation as in when we come to God and we say we're sinners and, well, I messed up, I made a mistake, and God just sort of winks and says, that's ah, okay, I love you anyway, you know, come on into heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't God winking at your sin and saying, it's okay, I love you anyway. The gospel is... You come to God with your sin that he has taken that punishment and judgment and he has poured it out on Christ. Someone did pay the penalty for your sin. Someone does bear the judgment for your sin. God doesn't just wink at it and push it under the rug. He poured it out on Jesus so that he's able to both be just and also the justifier for those who are in Christ. Those who come to Jesus in faith, Paul calls us, I'll just read it to you, Romans chapter 11, verse 5. Romans 11, verse 5, so too at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God will preserve his remnant through the judgment. God will preserve his remnant 
through the judgment. Paul says, those of us who are in Christ, we're like those faithful few who were exiled to Babylon, the remnant that God was preserving by his grace. When God told Elijah, there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knees to Baal, I have a remnant chosen by grace, that's them. So too, Paul says today, amidst all the chaos and turmoil of the world, And how it might look like all is lost and the kingdom is lost and the church has lost and no one loves Jesus or God and it's all lost. God says, no, I'm preserving a remnant for my name chosen by grace. This remnant are all the redeemed who will reign with Christ forever. A kingdom. Peter says we're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. All of this Old Testament terminology that the New Testament authors unashamedly apply to the church. Oh, God still has a people. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, true Israel, the sons of Abraham, the kingdom of God, the church of the living God, the remnant chosen by grace, the remnant that God will preserve through even the last judgment and will reign with him forever and ever. Why? Because the one in whom we placed our trust, Jesus, is God's perfect king who will reign forever. If you don't take away anything else from First and Second Kings, take away this fact. All those other kings failed. But God is still faithful to all of his promises in Christ. All the promises, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And at the end of time, when he comes back, what is he called except King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Where all these other kings failed, as good as their report cards were, where all these other kings failed, and even the good ones went on to just die like the rest, the New Testament tells us this king will never die. He reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's coming back again to take all of his redeemed into their eternal reward. To be with him and to reign with him forever and ever. And I hope that as we come you know, to the end of the kings, the gospel has been clear. That's why we have these books. We don't just, you know, the, the, the authors of the Old Testament God and his providence and wisdom does not have these books here just for us to see history. You could read them and just see history. You can see all the politics and the empires and the kingdoms, and all that's very interesting. Absolutely. We should know that stuff. There is history. There's politics. There's the ins and outs of kings and kingdoms here. But at the end of it all, we need to remember how it all starts. The Lord raises up kingdoms. The Lord tears down kingdoms. And maybe if you were just to go away with the Bill Gaither song tonight, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for our King Jesus, who is our prophet, priest, and king. Thank you that in these unfamiliar stories, many of them, in the the, the dark scenes that we've come across in this book we nevertheless see your light shining through every page and every word 
We see your Holy Spirit directing our hearts to this longing for our King, a longing for this one who is to come and to reign in righteousness and justice forever. And we give you thanks that even as we're just a few months away from Christmas, you made a promise to a young girl named Mary that she would give birth to a son and call his name Jesus and that he indeed would sit on the throne of his father David to uphold it and to reign in righteousness and justice forever. And we thank you that through his cross and his resurrection, we've been made part of that kingdom. We are kings and priests to you because of Jesus. And one day, that kingdom will come in its fullness. And God, how we long for that day when we see our king face to face, when all the troubles and trials of earth are done, all the kingdoms and kings of earth are rubble beneath his feet. We long to see him crowned as king of kings and lord of lords forever and ever. Oh God, help us to love that day and help us to worship Jesus every day as our king and the one who rules over us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Send us out of this place with your hope, your mercy, your peace, and your grace in Christ. I ask this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.